Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts, the seventh chapter, verses 55 through 60. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Well, we're concluding um, a post-Easter message series um, that's focused on living in the power of the resurrection. This morning, we're going to look at a spirit-filled life, a man who certainly exemplified living in the power and newness of life um, as an example for us. I've been asking myself this question all week. I wonder how large those stones were. They had to be small enough to get your hand around, uh, to get a good grip on them so that you could give them a good pitch, but they had to be large enough to do some damage when they reached their target. I wonder how large those stones were. And I've been wondering how many stones it takes to do a young man like Stephen in. After all, these bodies of ours are amazingly resilient. They can take a lot of damage. None of us, at least none of us my age or older, will ever forget the beating of Rodney King in the streets of Los Angeles or the concrete block being thrown at the head of Reginald Denny. They both survived, thankfully. So how many stones do you figure it would take to kill Stephen? I've been wrestling with the story of the stoning of Stephen, the first official martyr of the church, all week in preparation for this sermon. I was tempted to title the sermon, Get Stoned with Stephen. But because, and by the way, because I wanted us to put ourselves in Stephen's shoes this morning and see what lessons we can learn as we do that. I want us to consider how the story speaks to us today. But that title would only illustrate how language has changed over the years. It would have a different meaning these days, wouldn't it? At any rate, I've been wondering how many stones it would take. How many stones do you think it would take? Luke's a master storyteller. He structures this story so that it is really impossible to miss the polar opposites between the anger and the hostility and the violence of the crowd on the one side and the peace-filled, spirit-soaked calm of Stephen on the other. And for effect, he keeps shifting the spotlight back and forth as he tells the story between the two. For instance... Verse 54, when they heard these things, speaking of the crowd, when the crowd heard these things, they became enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. Now remember, these were decent, upstanding folks, people who were the solid religious rocks in the community and 
now they are angry because of what Stephen was saying about their religious tradition. Mark Twain once said that there's nothing in this world that is quite so hard to put up with as the annoyance of a good example. And that's evidently how they felt about Stephen. They were enraged, their anger seethed within them and they ground their teeth and anger fed more anger. And this is a very violent story. It, it reveals, in fact, just how dangerous that kind of anger can be. I've discovered across the years that danger is perhaps the trickiest of all of our emotions to deal with. I've discovered that God can't do a single thing with anything in our lives that is motivated by violent, hostile anger. Anger breeds more anger, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. The spotlight shifts now, speaking of Stephen, but filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is the third time in the book of Acts that Luke says Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Filled with over, to overflowing with the Spirit of Jesus. He was a servant in the church. He was a follower of Jesus whose life was saturated with the loving Spirit of our risen Lord. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, we call Stephen a saint. Can I say he didn't know he was a saint? You know how this works, right? In fact, it was a couple of centuries later uh, before the church designated Stephen as a saint, he was just an ordinary follower of Jesus, but, but he became a saint. Saints are ordinary people who in the middle of anger and stress and conflict and violence can look up and see Jesus. And by the way, the crowd didn't like that a bit. They covered their ears, Luke says, and with a loud shout, they rushed together against him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. And then Luke shifts the focus back to Stephen. Picture him probably down over a hill, perhaps in a pit which was customary for, uh, for the day. Uh, that meant that the, the angry mob was up on the hillside hurling their stones down on top of him. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, and here's what he prayed. Lord, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried, cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound familiar to, to any of you? Doesn't that sound like something we heard back on Good Friday? Stephen is quoting the, the 31st Psalm just the way Jesus did when he says, Lord, receive my spirit on the cross. And doesn't he sound a bit like Jesus while Jesus was being nailed to the cross praying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing? Can I say this is no coincidence? The only place, in fact, where these two statements are recorded on the lips of Jesus is in the gospel according to Luke. The same person who wrote this account 
of the stoning of Stephen. Luke obviously wants us to see Stephen dying in the same spirit and with the same faith of Jesus. And when he said this, he died. I wonder how large those stones were. I wonder how many it took to do Stephen in, and I wonder what this story might have to say to us. You know, it might be enough just to remember it as the historical record of the life of the early church. I mean, perhaps it would be enough just to remind us that the faith in which we believe, the good news which we proclaim, the love of God which we celebrate has been handed down to us from generation to generation by the blood of martyrs and the hands of saints. It might be enough just to remember people like Stephen who have heard Jesus say, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. It might be just enough for us to remember people who are persecuted for their faith right down to this present hour. I was listening to an in, uh, 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 NPR report just a couple of days ago about Christians being brutally persecuted in parts of our world even to this day, this morning. But, but let's take it one step farther than that. The odds are that we're not going to be martyrs for the faith. Frankly, I get a little squirrely about folks who think they are. I mean, folks go out looking sometimes. Those folks who go out looking for martyrdom, I'm a little squeamish about that. There are always those with martyr complexes, like the mother who says, don't worry about changing the light bulb I'll just sit here in the dark while you go out and have a good time. You know, I heard someone say, it's one thing to be a martyr for doing what is good and just and holy and right. It's something else altogether to be a martyr for doing what's just ignorant or stupid. Anyway, most of us probably don't fall into the martyr category, do we? But all of us, I suspect sooner or later, will know how it feels to be on the downside of life all of us, to some degree or another, know how it is to feel as if the anger of the world is being unleashed against us. All of us, to some degree or another, know how it feels to be on the bottom of life. If you haven't experienced it yet, you probably will. And so what does this story have to say about us, or to us, I should say, about the way disciples of Jesus face the downside of life? So I want to suggest a couple of things that are taken right out of this story. The first thing the story says is that there is no guarantee that if you follow Jesus, everything is going to be just hunky-dory from there on in. In fact, the people who try to guarantee that if you give your life to Jesus, everything is going to work out and be trouble-free and rosy clearly haven't read their Bibles. The only guarantee Jesus makes that if we really choose to fully follow him, it will mean learning to carry a cross. And there's no promise in the Bible that our lives will be protected from deep pain or grief or bitter conflict or great difficulty. In fact, I would submit to you that if we're really serious about our discipleship, if we're determined to be faithful to the call of Jesus and let him be the, the example for us, then it's inevitable that sooner or later we will face the stress and the strain and the conflict and the tension that faithful discipleship brings into our lives. It goes with the territory. And that's where the second lesson in this story comes in. How do people of faith, how do people who are filled with the Spirit 
face times like that? Now, I suspect that the answer to that question is revealed in the way Luke structured this story with this bold contrast between the anger of the crowd and the peaceful prayer of Stephen. It's the difference between the hostility and the hatred on one side and the compassion and forgiveness on the other, between those who hurl their angry stones and the way Stephen looks up into the sky and sees the face of Jesus. People of faith, people who follow Jesus are people who in the midst of all of their difficulty and pain and conflict discover deep within them a still, quiet, sacred space where they are filled with the Spirit of God. That's what makes them saints. They are filled with the Spirit of Jesus. They respond to the world in which they live the way Jesus responded to the world in which he lived. It's the difference the Spirit makes in human life. And the third lesson in the story is that we should be content. This is so clearly illustrated in the way Luke tells the story. We ought to be content to play our lives to an audience of one. I'm sure it's a well-worn story, but worth repeating, about the brilliant young pianist who was given, giving his very first concert, and when the, as the final chord of his marvelous performance reverberated around the hall, the audience rose to its feet and broke out in this thunderous applause, only one member of the audience, but it happened to be a member of the audience in the front row, center seat, remained seated, clapping very politely, but without any particular enthusiasm. Tears welled up in the young pianist's eyes. He dropped his head slightly as he left the stage with feelings of deep failure. The, the stage manager in the great hall, who was a very sensitive, observant, and compassionate man, noticed this lone gentleman and, and saw how his cool response affected the star performer. And so he approached him. And meaning well, he said, Son, you're a hit. Everyone was overwhelmed. The critic of the times was in tears. By morning, you'll be famous. Don't let one guy get you down. Who cares what he thinks? You don't understand, said the dejected young man. He was my piano teacher. It only matters what he thinks. I had an experience like that. My wife will be familiar with the name that I'm going to share. I was at Aurora University in suburban Chicago doing my undergrad work. And uh, I was asked to give the senior, what was called in the day, the senior sermon at the chapel service at Aurora University. And it was an honor, and I enjoyed doing that. Uh, my sermon, I think, was warmly received pretty well, uh, complimented by people who came forward. It was a tradition for, you know, faculty members and people that were part of the university community to come forward. And obviously they were trying to encourage young preachers or anybody who was willing to do, uh, deliver the message, the sermon for the day. And so they did that. But Dr. Kenneth Mull... I wish I had brought a picture to put on the screen. I should have given that to Robert, but Dr. Kenneth Mull, um, the head of the, the religion department, uh, long silver hair, big, long, flowing silver beard, steely, and I mean steely blue eyes, looking everything like Moses plucked right out of the pages of the Old Testament, with the exception of riding around campus on his bicycle with Bermuda shorts, 
nylon socks that went up to his knees, wingtip dress shoes, and a bandana around his head. Okay, and usually a tie-dye t-shirt. He was kind of eccentric. But he was the head of the religion department, and he was quite a scholar and a gentleman, a former, well, a United Methodist clergy person who formerly pastored before going to Northwestern University to get his PhD and began his academic career. He waited at the back of the line and was the last one to come up and greet me. And when he did, I never will forget, very simply, he looked at me and said, we need to get you into a preaching class. That's almost an exact quote. I got to tell you, I felt absolutely dejected as a young preacher. And one of my well-meaning friends who had witnessed the exchange between me and Dr. Mole basically did the same thing that the stage guy did to the young piano star. He said, Fred, don't be upset. He said, look, everybody else thought you did terrific. Don't let one guy get you down. Doesn't matter what he thinks. But again, my friend didn't understand. It only mattered what he thought. In fact, I can tell you he's one of the reasons I became a United Methodist. And um, after he told me we need to get you into a preaching class, trust me, I quickly forgot every kind of accolade and pat on the back that had just preceded that and focused in on his words and thought, I need some help preaching, I guess. You know, it may just be that the church has too many crowd pleasers already. What we need maybe is a bumper crop of faithful disciples who are content to play to an audience of one. And that's precisely what Stephen did. The crowd did anything but applaud as he turned his trial into an opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel. And as he was being stoned, the scripture story says Jesus stood up at God's right hand. In fact, some translations are a little more straightforward. Some translations say, as Stephen was being stoned, Jesus stood up. It's almost as if Jesus took notice. You get the sense that Jesus took notice and observed the faithful discipleship, the bold witness of Stephen. Jesus stood up at God's right hand. You see, it doesn't matter how many pats on the back you get from others or how many accolades and accomplishments we can pile up along the way. Only one thing really matters. Does Jesus stand up? Only he knows whether you're performing like a virtuoso or clowning around with accords. Only he can tell whether the music is flowing from our hearts or being played rote from a collection of notes scrawled on a score. Only he can blend the melody from your instrument with the music of others to make a symphony of praise that can breathe new life into your soul, into this congregation, into our community. So the lesson is that we should never let anything, even not even the applause of those around us, divert our gaze from the one in the front row, center seat, Jesus himself. And I'm convinced that the final thing this story is saying to us is watch out for the surprises of God. You see, if we're faithful in our discipleship, committed to Christ, if we stand strong, even if we must stand alone against the crowd as Stephen did, something very special comes to play in our lives. Just about the time you think you're at the bottom of life, just about the time you think you've lost it all, that you've been defeated, that everything that you've hoped and dreamed for is gone, 
watch out for the surprises of God. It's in the story. Did you catch it? Luke tucks this fascinating little detail into his narrative that we should not miss. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stoning is a rough business. This was the hot part of the day. You don't want your best coat to get all messed up with your sweat and the dirt and the blood. So they stripped off their coats, put them in a pile, and laid them at the feet of an approving onlooker, Saul. Evidently, Saul didn't throw any stones. He just watched over the coats and watched over the stoning of Stephen. But he approved of it all. In fact, some scholars suggest that he even sanctioned the whole thing. And that's not a stretch because right after this chapter, the eighth chapter begins. The seventh chapter is where this story is. The eighth chapter begins with Saul going through town, cranking the Christians out of their homes and carrying them off to prison. But you know the rest of the story, right? Later down along the road to Damascus, Saul met Jesus. His name was changed to Paul, and he became one of the greatest proclaimers and defenders that the Christian faith has ever had. And toward the end of Paul's life, this is what I find so moving. Toward the end of Paul's life, when he himself was standing trial, he told the story of the stoning of Stephen. Watching a faithful saint live and die can have a profound impact on your life. Just about the time you're ready to throw in the towel, watch out for the surprises of God. Elijah Lovejoy was an Illinois school teacher newspaper reporter, and then later a Presbyterian preacher. One day he watched a gang of, uh, a, a white gang lynch a black man. It changed his life. He became a part of a movement for the abolition of slavery in this country. He tried it as a preacher for a while, and then he decided that he could have more influence with his newspaper. So he gave up preaching and went to publishing an abolitionist paper. As you can imagine, it made him, given the realities of the day, an unpopular character. The windows of his office were broken out many, many times over. Stones were hurled at him in the street. Finally, they came with a mob. Like the crowd around Stephen, they'd had enough. They came with a mob, set fire to his newspaper office, burned up everything, including the press, and they thought they had done him in. But the next day, he was back at it. He said he had to be more faithful to God than, than all the people around him, and he swore to continue to proclaim the word of abolition until he died. Four days later, they came back and murdered him. And not one of the people who killed him were ever even charged with the crime. 
Now, I suspect that some people would say Elijah Lovejoy never saw much come of his attempts at abolition. I mean, he lost everything and even his life along the way. I guess that by the world's standards, he ended up on the downside of life. But there was a young man who read Elijah Lovejoy's newspapers and who heard about his tragic death and whose life was profoundly moved and shaped by it all. And that young man's name was Abraham Lincoln. Watch out for the surprises of God. I wonder how big those stones were. And I wonder how many they had to throw. I can tell you this. However big they were, and however many stones they threw, I am certain that one thing is for sure. They weren't enough. Amen.